Welcome to EdSpark 21, the podcast from Battelle for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to advance 21st century deeper learning for every student. In this episode, Battelle for Kids president and CEO, Dr. Karen Garza, talks with educational leader and founding executive director of Battelle for Kids, Dr. Jim Mahoney, about his book, To Lead is to Teach, Stories and Strategies from the Classroom to the Boardroom. In his new book, To Lead is to Teach, Jim Mahoney shares compelling stories and lessons for life and leading. I asked him to join me for this podcast to discuss the impact of teachers, how good teaching and effective leading are often interchangeable, and the power of storytelling. Here's our conversation. Well, Jim, really nice to see you. Really been looking forward to this conversation with you. And um, so thank you for your time today. Oh, yeah, glad to be here. Well, Jim, having known you for as long as I have, it was really a, a wonderful um, opportunity to read about you. And I learned so much I didn't know about you that maybe I thought I did. Um, but I loved your book. And the title, To Lead is to Teach, Stories and Strategies from the Classroom to the Boardroom. And I'll tell you, I, I just ate it up. I, lo- I loved it. Um, in the book, I'm just going to start because you tell also about your kind of upbringing and your personal right. life and how it kind of formed your thinking about uh, leading edu- and, and education. And you spoke you know, very um, warmly about your father. And I kind of related to it. Uh, right. I had such a wonderful relationship with my father as well. And in the book, um, of course, he was a flawed human being and my father was flawed, but you learned so right. much from him. And you just, in describing his impact, you wrote, support shows you how, encouragement says you can, and confidence comes from overcoming the challenge. So if you wouldn't mind, just talk about your father's role and how it helped you kind of think about struggles and obstacles you had and you know, maybe it's relevance to young people today. Sure. Uh, when I think back, and you know how things are, it's like you have an experience and then it's after some time that you reflect on what really happened and what you learned from that. And, and I think about my own dad. Oh, I, I, I want to throw in a, there was a study years ago uh, that I used to use when I would speak. It was about it, Columbia University had done it with a group of 40-year-olds in New York who had grown up in, uh, less than ideal circumstances, and they had done incredibly well in lots of professions. And I'm not comparing myself to any of that, but the reason why, they gave, there were several reasons, but the number one reason, they found somebody who unequivocally believed in them. That was my dad. He expected much of me. So it wasn't, uh, you, know, one of, you know, it wasn't one of these commercials, no matter how you did, it was good enough. It wasn't. Uh, but it was somebody who both expected much of me and absolutely encouraged me, encouraged me. This is a guy who quit school in the eighth grade to help his five younger sisters and single mother it, during the depression, work at the WPA and uh, the PWA, and then was a World War II veteran and all of those things who was very selfless, but who understood the value of education, who encouraged it, and more importantly, encouraged me. And that's what I remember most. So when I think about 
anything that I may have accomplished, he's been underneath at the wind beneath my wings. And that has always been there. And that part was fun in writing the book to think about him because he passed away uh, many, many years ago. He never got to see me coach a game. He would have been at those games. Uh, he never got to see any of what were the fruits of his hard work in helping me to become uh, in part some of the things that I became that I hope would have made him proud. But we all need somebody who unequivocally believes in us and they make us mad, they irritate us, but we know they care about us unequivocally. And because of that, uh, the older I get, the more appreciative I am of that. And I can remember one time going back to a high school thing to speak and I talked about him, I got to talk to him. And I got to talk about two or three other people who expected much of me. And I remember afterwards, a girl came up to me uh, who I hadn't seen for many, many years. And there were tears in her eyes. She said, you know, I just wonder if my life might've been different if somebody had expected something of me. And, and that haunted me for a long time. And I thought how fortunate I was that it wasn't about material things because we didn't have those things, but it was the relationship. And so I appreciate you asking about that. No one's ever asked about that, but, uh, and you can relate to it, having somebody like that. And so it really, that really does matter. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I think we were both fortunate to have a parent like that, but for children that might not have a parent like that, I know of many, many teachers who also have you know, demonstrate a lot of care and concern for children, but also have high expectations and provide the support, as you mentioned in that quote, encouragement and that helping them build their confidence. I mean, I see so many educators that, that also, you know, they're not the same as a parent, but they sure do a lot. Oh, you, yeah. Can you describe some of the relationships you have with your students that you still, you know, communicate and engage with sure. today Yeah. in that role? They, those things matter. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I had this group of kids for three years in a row. This was looping before we called it looping. It was uh, looping by accident, I'll call it, <laughs> because the teacher ahead of me two years in a row left. I had these kids for three years. And it was right before the bicentennial. We buried this time capsule. And of those 24 kids, 21 of them showed up nearly 25 years later to open that time capsule. And we had a wonderful time, but I had promised uh, the Jennings Foundation that uh, they'd give me a grant for dinner that night. And some people had gone with me, interviewed all the kids and that sort of thing. So I eventually had to write an article and I had hours of tape. It had been transcribed. I'd never read any of it. And then I got a prompt from them saying, hey, uh, you prompt. And I can remember going to a, a coffee shop and reading through 60 pages of notes. And when I say it's not about me, it's about teachers. I read this and I, and candidly, I just sat there and tears welled up because here were kids sharing memories that I had no memory of. One boy saying to me, you were the father figure in my life. You took me places, you did things with me. Uh, and then you realize the power you have in this relationship. And sometimes you don't know how powerful it is. And if I go back to that Columbia study, the thing that separated those uh, successful 40 year olds from those 
who went a different way. It was an adult who made a difference, not always a parent at all. Uh, it was a, an adult in their community. It could be a relative. It was an uncle. It was a custodian. It was somebody who absolutely was interested in them. But it, in my case, uh, I didn't have anything else. I was single. I'm in a poor place. Uh, I couldn't have gone out to dinner for two reasons. One, I couldn't have afforded it. And number two, there was no place to go. So that was perfect. And I just poured all of my energies into uh, that group because they became a quasi family for me and their parents adopted me too. And so that was a very powerful thing when you think about not all kids have that, but there are adults, there are teachers, there are coaches, there are other people who play a huge part where kids don't have a direct person. You know, I, um, you talk a lot about you had to move to lots of different schools when you were growing up. Just one more right. question on your personal life, because I just saw so much connection. You moved around a lot, and you said you came to really appreciate the simple kindness of a warm welcome. Amen. I and, you know, I, I just find that so true, and you know, that, that applies today as much as it did back when you were a child, I think. Yeah, it does. I don't know whether it was her quote, but she's credited with it. Maya Angelou, you know, this notion about when I, you know, when I feel something, I remember it. You know, I'll forget what you say. Thankfully, I forget what you do sometimes, but I rarely forget how you made me feel. That's what stays with you uh, over long periods of time was how somebody made somebody feel. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's kind of an enduring principle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you and I both were superintendents and you had a wonderful, very successful career as a superintendent, but there's a funny, interesting story that I did not know about you. And your first superintendency, you quit after one day. And I thought it was such a fascinating story that I just had to bring it up, Jim. Of course, I know you've been a very successful superintendent. Yeah, but well, it's true. Yeah, and you say that uh, in the book, there are no failures, only lessons, which I right. love. And that was love a lesson. That. So, And, uh, you know, it was one of those. I, uh, uh, I, I was hired for who I was as a teacher. They didn't know me as an administrator. They didn't even check to see if my one year as a principal in another part of the state was a good year. <laughs> and it reminds you of the power of teachers. Uh, but I clearly was not prepared technically in any other way. And it was clear to me that after I'd taken it, I, I called the board president, we met and I shared with him that this was gonna be a lift. We had principals that really weren't happy about this and I'm fully ready to go. To which in his kindness, he said, look, we have plenty of time. If you don't wanna do this, we'll get somebody else. Do what's best for you. And he helped me talk through that. And then, it, you know, there were many lessons, but the lesson when I got over the embarrassment of it all, and then I made sure I could get my old job back and <laughs> all of that stuff. When I got through all that, it was sometimes you want to, that decision was made strictly with my heart. And sometimes making it strictly with your heart is not the right decision. Uh, nor is it always made logically either, but you need both. But what I did know is that I was not prepared. That was clear. 
And I never regretted that it was another five years before I became superintendent somewhere else. But by that time, I was clearly much more prepared than what I would have been then. So there were lots of lessons in it, in addition to embarrassment, because it was embarrassing. Hey, uh, as a superintendent, you have plenty. Yeah, as a superintendent, you have plenty of opportunity to be embarrassed on occasion. Yeah. So that that uh, that comes with the territory. But I loved how self-aware you were, even as a young young leader. That takes a level of self-awareness that sometimes not all of us have at that age, you know, to recognize that you weren't quite ready. And you just knew it wasn't right. You just knew, and and I I've never ever regretted that. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was just the right, it was just the, it was the right thing. And it, it turned out the way it was supposed to turn out. So Jim, I don't know of anyone who's a better storyteller than you. Seriously, as long as I've known you, you have, you're the best storyteller I've ever seen in my life. And in this book, you do a really, really nice job of talking about the power of storytelling. And if you would talk a little bit about kind of what you've learned about storytelling, you know, and, and, you know, advice you might have for superintendents about how you yeah. cultivate that skill and why it's, why it's important. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. This happened to me last night. I was in Marietta and I ran into a former student. Uh, I was with a, a small group at dinner and, you know, this is a kid I had in school many, many years ago. And we laughed and I teased the person with me. I, I said, I looked at this former student and said, here, I want you to tell this person how you know me. And she laughed. She said, well, we both worked at Walmart. We were greeters and we laughed. But then, you know, she told the person, said, you know, he's my fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade teacher. I was totally unscripted. And I said, uh, and we laughed and this person couldn't believe. And then she said, I'll tell you what I remember. She said, I just remember I couldn't read the notes you'd write. I couldn't remember the scribbles you'd make on the board. But what I remember is you made history a story. And I was always interested because it was a story. So part of that I did unintentionally back then because when I would teach history, particularly American history, I, that is what I tried to emphasize to the kids. This is, a, this is a great story. You got characters, you got good things, bad things. Uh, but what I have found for superintendents too often, it is not the facts that will will move the dial always. And I'm not, this is not a non-support of facts. Having those is essential. But being able to share the narrative, being able to stitch things together in a way that is helpful in a way that they connect with. I often thought of this story and it makes sense, you know, for me to uh, tell a random story about why stories are so important. When Franklin Roosevelt passed away, for our country at the time, uh, many adults, it's the only person they ever knew is, had ever been president. World War II is coming to an end. Uh, a train leaves where he had passed away in Worms Springs, Georgia, back to the nation's capital. And is there, it had whistle stops and people would pay their respects. And at one of the whistle stops, you had the president's flag draped coffin. And as it would stop, people would come up, uh, there was a photojournalist there who saw a man in a suit and a hat and the man was weeping uncontrollably. And the journalist came up to him and said, 
you, you must have known the president. He said, no, he knew me. And part of that is when you tell stories, it is your opportunity to relate to people whom you're trying to persuade because much of being superintendent is persuasion and instruction and stories stick with people. Uh, and it's a skill. It's not an art. It may go to an art form, but it is a skill. Skills can be improved. If you can have a conversation, you can tell a story. It's just saying it to a larger audience and practicing it. So it's in all the classes that I have, we always do. I do segments on storytelling, then we practice it. And so that whether you're starting a meeting, whether you're starting a staff gathering, whatever it is, to have something that relates and a point you want to make, because they're different kinds, but they come from everyday things that people relate to. So I, I think the value of that is a skill in communication. The other thing you'll notice this, I don't, you can be in the largest audience in the world and they can all have their phones out and they can be uh, texting or whatever. And you can be talking and the minute you launch into a story, it has their attention. Stories captivate attention. And then there's, there's a form to doing it. I'd recommend a book. Uh, here's a book that I'd recommend that every superintendent read. It's called Stories That Stick. And it's a, a book that came out a couple of years ago. And I thought the author, Kendra Hall, I believe is her name, is uh, she did a wonderful job explaining the rationale, offering a framework for how you build them, how you do it in an entertaining, great fashion and told lots of stories and four examples. And I thought, boy, that's a wonderful, wonderful book. And so I use that, but I think, I do think that's a, and I don't know how it was for you, but I never took a class in communication. Yet the truth of it is as superintendent, you spend most of your time communicating. And so it's in writing. So while I say storytelling, how to write memos, uh, and uh, I, I just laughed about this today with somebody. I've got two memos. These are from financial advisors. One of them is short, sweet, really crisp and clear. And the other one, I read it and I thought, this must have been written for a Harvard business case class because I'm not sure what she said here. And, but it's fascinating because I, but that becomes part of it. Right. So you think in your repertoire, you do have groups you need to communicate with. And the personal storytelling is one, but there are clearly others. Yeah, I like this, the idea of, you know, storytelling with, with a purpose. And I do, the research is really clear on what you said, Jim, about, you know, how stories can capture people's hearts and minds. And sometimes that's what they'll pay attention to. Or oh, it is. You'll, you'll capture their attention uh, with the story. And you know what's... what's What's cool with superintendents is they have some of the best sources for stories anywhere because there are kids all over their school district that are doing something funny and interesting. Well, you can't make up the stuff that happens <laughs> in schools. That's I mean, right. you just can't. can't make it up. That's right. And you're That's right. right. You know, you can borrow those and uh, it's just a rich, rich source of those that you can gather. But it's just saying, you know, I'm going to write these down. And then 
then, then the part that you said, Karen, about, and I really try to be cognizant of that. It has to have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, it's a joke. It doesn't relate. If you want it to have impact, it might be, look, there's three points you're going to make. And you're going to introduce it with something that really frames those three points. And you're thinking about that because it does have to have a purpose. And uh, otherwise, it's just a random, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I, w- I would say for people that are interested, I know I really appreciate the reference uh, to stories that stick, the book that you mentioned. But I would also say your book has a lot of good tips on how you might think about approaching storytelling and using it. Um, to, to make an important point or message, because you're right, at the end of the day, superintendents are are the, almost the com- key communicator for a district. And so it's an important- And we've all been in that I'm situation. Still, I'm still working on it, Jim. I'm still no, working no, on we, it. Hey, look, we're all a work in progress. I remember those board meetings where I thought, I talked too long. I had too many of this. I lost them. Or I'm having a levy meeting. And, you know, and once you get into- at least in Ohio, describing millage and rollback and all of these things, the nuances of school finance, people are quickly turned off and what they don't understand, they don't trust. And pretty, and it's like, not to minimize it, and it's never to simplify something that can't be simplified, but it is to make it simpler and easier to understand. You and I both know Bill Sanders, who I love. Bill Sanders was the, for listeners, he really was the father of value-added methodology. And which, which, by the way, is a a growth-based measure, right? Measuring progress of student growth. Mm -hmm. And Bill Sanders really created, he was a world-class statistician. And he was one of the few people I ever met in my life who could talk to the most sophisticated statisticians in the world. I mean, I sat through a conversation. They didn't talk about the Pearson coefficient. He talked about Pearson. He knew it. And he could level that conversation up, or he could also talk with our custodian who loved to hunt squirrel uh, and have that conversation. There's not very many people. And he did it through story, understanding audience, and being able to connect. And that's one of the things that I learned from him. And at the time I had a lot of experience because uh, we all try to work to connect because connection is so powerful and we're not always successful, but you know, there's been many a times I thought, you know, that just wasn't very good. And I knew it. And I thought, I got to figure out a way to do that better. And that's, that's what we're always doing. That's the room for improvement. When somebody says, oh no, I've arrived. You need to run from them. Oh, I totally agree with that. I say that all the time. That's I agree. So in the back part of the book, you uh, also you you give some tips on storytelling, but you also give a, talk a lot about, and, and I think it's a real important section around how do you build the importance of building positive relationships and a positive culture. And you kind of alluded to this a little earlier about my Angelou, and you know how important it is, how how you make people feel. Um, and I just, I told you recently a story about, I had early on in my career, a really fabulous principal. And she said, talked about how often we walk away from our educational experiences with these memories. And she said, how many of you have memories? Well, scientifically, 70 something percent of people remember negative memories. And so what she said is, if, when you're making a memory, make it a positive one, try to make it a positive one. 
So talk a little bit about um, your message around positive relationships and positive culture and how that's so important today. Um, well, it is. And I think what you said is, is spot on, but I'll give you an example. I, when I was a middle school principal, we still have lots of schools that have advisor advisee programs. Mm -hmm. And I really had to work to create a schedule that enabled uh, every student to be part of a small group led by an adult. And we set aside time that they could be with these adults. And the hard part was getting people to give up time and blah, 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 because this was uh, a large middle school. And when I did that, I thought that was, I, I was done. And until teachers started coming to me and some said, what do you want us to do? I said, just build a relationship with the kids. And then some teachers would say, what do you want us to do? And I realized that's not always intuitive for everyone. So when we talk about building a positive relationship, you have to do it authentically. You cannot be somebody else. That's why I love Oscar Wilde's quote, uh, be yourself. Everybody else is taken and yourself <laughs> is enough. Yeah, I love but it. But to figure out how to relate to kids and we finally had to give people some ideas. So one of the things I tried to put in the book was that very thing. Here's some tips. Here's some questions you might ask to start conversations. Here's some practices that, or variations of those, because it has to be consistent with who you are. Look, the best ideas I've ever gotten, and this, this is true in education, these are ideas you steal. Somebody else has done them. And you do a variation that works for you. But I think that at the end of the day, that culture you create is intentional that you say, how do I want, what do I want people to, I, it, it's almost like at the start of every presentation, before I ever do that, I always ask you, who wants me to do this? I'll say, when this is over, what do you want people to know? How do you want people to feel? And lastly, what do you want them to do? Just tell me in your own words. And I think that's true in creating a culture uh, around any organization. What do you want to be known for? And then you begin to think, well, what is it that we would do that if we did those things, we would probably be known for? And I think the other thing people will, will do is they'll, look, movies have bad scenes. Not every scene is perfect. Uh, I watched Ted Lasso. Uh, there were some dark moments in that. And that couldn't have been more positive for people who haven't seen this series about a football coach that coaches soccer. Uh, we have some dark moments in our movies. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, there have to be more things that cause people to want to come there. And we know more and more employees want to be engaged in meaningful work and they want to be someplace where, as a principal once described to me, I love what he described, the high school principal I worked with for many years. He said, look, it's pretty simple what I want here. I want to have a school where teachers want to teach and kids want to learn. And that's what he did. And his practices were to make sure every kid was at least one extracurricular activity. Uh, he would tell parents, make sure your kids are here. He had three or four in pieces that he made sure happened for kids. And that helped to ensure that kids would want to be there. And I just thought it was really so well put. A place where teachers want to teach and kids want to learn. And then to put those practices in place because culture will be there. It's either intentional 
or completely unintentional or worse yet, it's why I often tell leaders get feedback because at the end of the day, not all things work. Uh, and I tell people one of my favorite quotations is you don't have to drink a gallon of milk to know it's spoiled. And in my case, you don't have to drink a keg of beer to know it's good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, getting feedback because some things just like uh, this, this isn't having the intended result. In fact, this is having a worse result than if I'd done nothing. But that's how, you, yeah. that's how we learn. Yeah. And, you know, I think some people think that culture is this kind of thing that it's a little bit happenstance, but, um, and, you know, they, they try to try to influence it, but to some extent feel like it's outside of their control. But, you know, I've always believed that, you know, the leaders are the keepers of the culture. Everyone contributes to it, right? Everyone contributes to it. We're all building culture every day, but I think that leader has to be intentional about paying attention to the culture. Right. Hey, I tell you, I, I, I still have this upstairs that somebody gave me when I first started as superintendent knew how much I like quotes. They gave me two quotes to put up. One was the road with no obstacles doesn't lead anywhere. So it was a reminder that this is hard. That's what you signed up for. It was easy. Everybody would do it and could do it. That's not true. And the other one though, I had to laugh was all people bring happiness. Some by coming, others believe, which are you. And I do think it's either a practice adds to or takes away from a per and, and you know, and then you break those down. It's not, a, a single, but it, but, but it's all those things because actions matter. And, and, and I want to pay out one more shout out to this high school principal who gave me the greatest quote that he used to do with kids too. He'd bring a kid in, he's a high school principal for 22 years. He was just terrific. And he said, he'd say to a high school kid, now son, uh, don't come in here and try to talk yourself out of something you have behaved yourself into. Because <laughs> culture is about behavior. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we judge it on. Mm -hmm. So it becomes all those. But I, but I I'd really try to encourage people to think about what they want and then to try to create that culture, because it's better to have. What is it? The failure is uh, not a failure to reach a goal, but it's to have no goal to reach and to uh, not know where you're going. It's not not getting there. It's not me knowing where you're going. So I, th I and, and culture plays a role in that. And I do think it's talked about a lot, but it needs to be consciously thought about and behaved into. I really, really like that the way, way you positioned that. I also really loved how you described how great teaching and great leading are the same thing. And that's kind of the essence of your book, kind of the primary thesis of your book. It is. And I'll tell you what that I'd story love for came you to talk about that. That research came from Patel for Kids. One of the things that we had a researcher who studied uh, high-performing teachers in Texas. Some of those would have been in Houston, uh, in Tennessee and Ohio. And he was at the Ross School of Business. And he wanted to do this. He had written a number of books about successful CEOs and successful organizations. He was in the business college, but he really cared about teaching. He studied these teachers. And part of his uh, salient conclusion was, you know, a, a teacher has the same skills as the best CEOs that I've ever seen. And all I did was flip that because it wasn't, well, teachers should all aspire to be great CEOs, baloney. Great CEOs should aspire to be great teachers. Mm 
And the thing that I found funny about it is I've met CEOs who wanted their kids to be anything other than teachers. And the ironic part, if they were any good, that's exactly what they were. Because their job was to engage and motivate. That if I ask uh, kids to say, tell me about your best teacher, and they would describe that person, I'm willing to bet a lot of the things they would say wouldn't be any different than if I said to somebody, tell me about the best boss you ever had. There's going to be a lot of similarities. So I do think good teaching is good leading, and good leading is good teaching. Because it, you know, did anybody want to think, I used to say this to the, that uh, whether you like them or not, that, uh, oh gosh, that Martin Luther King Jr. couldn't have inspired a group of eighth graders, uh, that Ross Perot couldn't have broken down uh, something complicated and made it easier to understand. There are skills that, that go with both these. And I suspect a lot of those, those folks, uh, and they do, they, they attribute to some of the teachers they had. But I think these are part and parcel that they are, and the other part in doing this is to elevate the teaching profession. You know, the last thing I used to say sometimes, so, well, you don't think it's so easy. You know, you should go to, I'll take you to school where it's 90 degrees outside and there's no air conditioning. You're on the second floor and you're with a group of seventh graders and it's two thirty in the afternoon. And I want you to do a lesson on changing decimals to fractions to percents. And then you tell me how easy all this is. It's hard work. Extraordinary difficult work, and I think people oftentimes underestimate it. Um, but I do, I really do see so much, uh, really profound the way you connected that, because I think it is that teaching, that inspiring, that leading, showing people the way requires some some level of of teaching, right? Is right. and I think that that certainly is is important. I, I, I'll give you one other one. I've often thought of. Um, when I, I, many, many years ago, I, when I went through uh, Ohio State, I went through ROTC. So I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army. Now it was right at the time, at the end of Vietnam. So I didn't have to serve my full two years because the Army at that very time was cutting back. So I spent six months, but it was interesting in basic training. I can remember there was this exercise where you were, you, you're going to be gassed. And you're going to, have to take out a face mask and put it on and all that. And I remember we're all standing out there. Nobody had ever been in a situation like this. It's very quiet because everybody's anxious. Uh, and I remember the person who was doing it, who was a captain in the army. And he said, if you get in there, you start to panic. You're not sure. He said, I want you to look right here to the east. I'm going to be on a raised platform because I'm going first. Watch me. That was teaching. And I have never forgotten that. Uh, it was about emulating the very things you're asking others to do. That is teaching in its simplest sense. And you can ask anybody who's ever been motivated by somebody, they rarely ask you to do something you would, they wouldn't do. And he did that for me right then. So that was an early lesson that I couldn't catalog because I didn't have any experience, but I remembered it. And it was teaching at its finest. So you see lots of examples of that in the private sector, the, the public sector, and, and certainly schools. Well, our time uh, has gone by so fast, Jim, because I could listen to you all day. But, but I do typically end all these podcasts with one simple question that I, I, I want to ask you as well. And that is, what makes you hopeful about the future of education? I am hopeful 
because there are still people who care. There are still people who want to make a difference. There are people who at the end of the day, that's what drives them. It is not simply economics. It is not, it is they want to make a difference. So I think how school, I often say school may not be a place, it'll be what's taking place. That may go in lots of different containers and forms, et cetera. But what I'm always hopeful about is when I see, I teach college classes, I still see people who wanna make a difference. And as long as we have people who want to make a difference, that that's the ingredient. The other things we can teach, but it's hard to teach somebody if you if you just don't have a heart for it. Uh, so that's what gives me always the most hope. Uh, and so that's that's it. It's in it, it rests with people who still want to make a difference. So Jim, thank you so much for this time today, and I just want to. Um, Thank you for being a wonderful leader. Uh, thank you for starting Battelle for Kids and getting us on solid footing as an organization, establishing us as a D, our DNA, DNA around innovation, which continues today. And then I would just say anyone that wants to be inspired, wants to hear some more wonderful stories about education and about motivating people um, in, in education, I would encourage you to pick up Jim's book, to lead is to teach stories and strategies from the classroom to the boardroom. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. I think you can also buy it at Target and some other places like that. But um, if you want to be inspired and get lots of great ideas for stories, uh, go pick up his book. Thank hey. you, Jim, for being with us. Hey, best to you always. Thank you for everything. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you, Jim. Patel for Kids thanks Dr. Jim Mahoney for this conversation about his book, To Lead is to Teach, and for his impact on educational leadership. The Answer 21 podcast is a production of Patel for Kids. Patel for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Visit bfk.org to learn more. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Ende, copyright 2019 and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org.